When was the last time you, you spoke at the Cornerstone? Um, it was before COVID. So I don't know. COVID killed everything. Else. Okay. Okay. Well, let's, let's pray, guys. Let's stand up and let's pray for Ken and let's pray for open hearts right now. Lord Jesus, we, we want you to speak to us. We want the things that happen here in the next minutes to be life-changing for us. Would you train us how to think right? Would you train us to how to be people who know how to respond to the questions that people ask? Thank you from a friend, Ken. Thank you for the years that he, spent, he has spent learning and teaching now, sharing with people how to be effective in presenting the answers that, that people have. Thank you for what's going to happen here now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Let me see if I can do this without anything falling to the ground. Sometimes... We'll find out. There's nobody here, so they ought to be safe. Um, first of all, I just want to tell you how much I always love worship here at the Stone. It is always impressive. I am always moved by God every single time. So whatever you're doing, you're doing it well. Also, Ben, is it? Love what you said. The first question, the answer is you left one part out, which is really important. To, no, it's not bad. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I got, after a debate one time, I had a guy come up, uh, an atheist, come up and go, how can I enjoy him forever? What does this mean exactly? If I'm also supposed to be out working for him, glorifying him. And my response was, it's the glorifying him that causes you to enjoy him as he lives within you and develops that work within you. So I've been asked to talk to you today about the culture, uh, its effect on us, and then how then should we live in light of these truths. This talk takes about 16 hours. <laughs> I've abbreviated it. You're welcome. Um, many of you have probably heard that we're in a postmodern culture. Y'all have heard that, right? Right? Um, but what is a postmodern culture? Can anyone define it? <laughs> it's it's, it's postmodern. That's exactly right. Ding, ding, ding. It is a reaction to the failure of modernism. That was helpful, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So then we have to ask what modernism was. What was an attempt to rise above the tradition and the authority of primarily the Roman church by virtue of man's reason alone? Not just the Roman church, also any sort of authority especially church authority, be it the Roman church or the Reformation that was starting to happen. By the way, does everybody know that uh, day after tomorrow is Reformation Day? Some of you people call that Halloween, which is cool. You get candy, but it's also Reformation Day. If you haven't seen the movie, I was just telling my buddy Roger, if you haven't seen the movie Luther, it's a great movie. I highly recommend it. Um, so... Moderns in particular wanted to rid themselves of what they thought was the tyranny of the Roman church and the church's restrictive traditions. Almost univocally, mankind decided that they would use telescopes and microscopes um, to be able to determine what reality is and then harness reality. And they wanted to do this without a priest telling them what to think. They also wanted to read the Bible for themselves in the original languages, not in the Latin that was forced on them by the Roman church. Now, I don't want anybody to get the opinion that I'm here slamming the Roman church. I'm not at all. 
All right, I'm telling you what the Reformation period and the uh, modern period was. So they wanted to ignore the priests and the popes in that respect, too. You don't get to tell me what the Bible says. I'll read it for myself and make my own decisions. All of that sounds kind of good to us probably, too, right? We want to be able to do that. Um, further, they would ignore the calls from the church uh, for a monarchy and instead erect democracies. We're voting in a few days. That probably sounds pretty good to us as well. So when all this was done, they believed that they would finally arrive at utopia. Paradise regained. And that was going pretty well until about 1914. Anybody know what happened in 1914? World War I. World War I. Exactly. Good. History majors in the, in the room, maybe. World War I, followed by the Russian Civil War, followed by World War II. Not, not good. Not utopia. Not what we were seeking. In his Descent of Man, Charles Darwin predicted this. He said, essentially, that if we believe that we are merely the consequence of blind physical forces evolving by chance, as his theory asserted, and if we go on to think about the consequences of that theory, no meaning in life, no morality. He said, eventually, we're just going to kill each other. This is what Charles Darwin said about his own theory and the consequences of understanding that theory properly. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, the, the great atheist German philosopher, in his novella, Thus Spake Zarathustra, said this. I'm actually going to quote a, a little bit here. I don't usually like to read this much, but it's important. So this is what he says. The madman ran into the marketplace calling out, unceasingly. I seek God. I seek God. As there were many people standing about who did not believe in God, he caused a great deal of amusement. Why? Is he lost? said one. Has he strayed away like a child? said another. The people cried out laughingly. The insane man jumped into their midst and transfixed them with his glances. Where is God gone? he called out. I mean to tell you we have killed him. You and I, we are all his murderers. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. You guys have heard God is dead before, right? That's where this comes from. And we have killed him. How shall we console ourselves, the most murderous of all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed? He has bled to death under our knife. Who will wipe the blood from us? With what water will we cleanse ourselves? What lustrums, what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? Here the madman was silent and looked again at his hearers. They were also silent and looked at him in great surprise. At last he threw his lantern on the ground so that it broke into pieces and was extinguished. Extinguished. I come too early, he said. I'm not yet at the right time. This prodigious event is still on its way and is traveling. It has not yet reached men's ears. The deed is as yet further from them than the furthest star, and yet they have done it. They killed God, he's saying. Nietzsche went on to say, not in this novella, later, he said, that the 20th century would become the bloodiest century in the history of mankind because of the philosophical ramifications of atheism. Keep in mind, he was an atheist. It was the bloodiest century in history. 200 million people died in that century because of wars, and those wars were driven by atheism and a hatred for Christianity and Judaism. So it turns out that modernism didn't work out exactly as they had hoped. 
And we did not achieve utopia, and so we fell headlong into postmodernism. As I said, postmodernism was a reaction to the failure of modernism. Remember, moderns thought that once they discovered enough truth, they would essentially have conquered reality. Postmodernism is a surrender to that failure. It says there is no truth, per se. And because there is no truth, there is no meaning to life, and there is no right way to live. Truth is whatever we decide it needs to be in order for us to be happy. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? How many times have, has someone told you, well-meaning person, maybe even your parents, and I'm not slamming anybody here, my parents told me the same thing. Do what makes you happy. Just be happy, that's the most important thing. That doesn't come in a vacuum. That comes because we're in a culture that's teaching us that, whether we want to hear it or not. This is, uh, we had at first this, this view by Nietzsche that nothing matters, there is nothing. This is called nihilism from the Latin nihil, which just means zero or nothing. And then we moved into with Jean-Jacques Rousseau and um, Jean-Paul Sartre. We moved into this view that it, what really matters is my happiness. This was called existentialism. The idea was, you know, if there is no meaning, if there is no truth, if there's only just what we make of it, then why not be happy, right? That leads to hedonism, by the way. Never works out, just so you know. And none of this, by the way, is new. It circulates under new names and has different ideas, but if you go to Acts 17, which I'm going to touch on in a minute, you're going to see Paul speaking to the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans had this same view. You know what? In the end, let's just be happy. Nothing else really matters. They were atheists. They were materialists, actually, just like the scientific materialists of today that believe there's nothing but protons and neutrons and the like. Which is odd because they make this with statements that come initially as concepts from their mind that aren't physical, so I don't know how that works. We can work on that later. Um, so we went from we are so smart that we can figure everything out to there is nothing to figure out, everything is meaningless, to, well, we can at least be happy. Right? That's what we did. The great 20th century philosopher David Lee Roth put it this way. Ah, some people are laughing. Some people know who he is. That's good. <laughs> He said, some go to women, some go to Jesus, and I'm absolutely certain both's all right. Well, but it takes me at least halfway through the label, for I can even make it through the night. Diamond Dave is saying that some people go to Jesus. Oh, please don't. Please. Especially not after, where do you go? Where the other guy was up here singing. I can't even begin. But thank you. Thank, thank you for your pity. Um, so Dave is saying that some women, or some people go to women to find peace and happiness. Some people go to Jesus to find peace and happiness, and both are fine. He goes to the bottle to find peace and happiness, and that's just as good. Now, I love David Lee Roth. I love Van Halen. I'm not trying to slam him. I'm pointing out an idea that existed in the culture. That, by the way, is painful. You should not do that. So truth doesn't matter. There is no truth. Only happiness matters. So let me ask you something. What just happened in this scenario to Christianity? Huh? It did that. It did that, and that's a, that's a good point. But to the culture at large, what happened to Christianity? It died. It died just like God died. And it died because God died. And it died because truth died. If there is no truth... 
And how could Christianity be true? Especially if it purports to be the religion of a man who called himself the truth. Christianity dies without one single specific point of the Christian worldview ever being shown false or even in doubt. I can tell you right now, if you are um, looking into the intellectual credibility of Christianity, there has never been a greater time to be a Christian. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And the more I, am, the more I get into physics, the more I get into philosophy, the more I get into science in general, cosmology, the more I find everywhere proof of God. It's, it's inarguable. And if you doubt it, go sit down with a really smart person and ask him about five basic questions, and he will not be able to answer them. I promise you. He can't answer them on his worldview. In fact, here's a, here's a thought for you. What you do with the question, does God exist, determines every other question you answer. Every other question will hinge on that, because every other question, even questions about things like math, and their relevance to the universe. Just some, really, you would think have nothing to do with God. They end up having an awful lot to do with what you did with the question, does God exist? So that's postmodernism. It was always going to be limited in scope, though. Eventually, people mature, and they realize that the whole enterprise is contradictory. You can't say there is no truth, because if you say there is no truth, it's a claim to truth. So the, 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 the statement kills itself. It's self-defeating, right? If there is, if there is no truth, then that statement can't be true. But if that statement's true, then it is true. You see what I'm saying? It, it even gets to be a little confusing but it's because it's so silly. It's false by definition. But though po postmodernism has weakened in its influence on us, it's still having its way with us, and it is generally because, you know, we like pleasure. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. By the way, the word Eden, the Garden of Eden, that word means pleasure. God created this world for us to enjoy while we glorify God. That was the whole point. So there's nothing wrong with pleasure, but generally we don't like people telling us how we should and should not have our pleasure. And so postmodernism works for us. It does some really heavy lifting for us in that environment. I get to do what I want. You don't get to tell me what, who are you? There is no truth. See how that works? Until somebody challenges you, you go, all right, well, well, that's where we're going. I won't go there just yet. So as a worldview, as a movement, postmodernism has died or is dying, but that begs the question, where are we now? Though we have drug some of the elements of modernism and postmodernism and even the Middle Ages with us into our current era, um, I contend that we have progressed into a new one. In this era, I would call post-truth. It's a post-truth era. And this is, by the way, I've been, doing, I've been doing debates. I teach debate. I've been in apologetics. I've been looking at philosophy for, uh, for decades because I'm really old. You can tell by my hair color. <laughs> right? So it's, I've had a chance to see how these things play out. I'm telling you from my personal experience, from what I've read, I think we've moved into another era. I'm calling it. It's not my word. I didn't coin it. I'm borrowing it from other people smarter than I. This is called post-truth. So... How this plays out is this. In previous eras, if you and I had a dispute, if you and I had a dispute about who's the best singer, you would obviously be the best singer, but I might, you know, my ego might be giving me troubles, and I might dispute that, and then you would be able to marshal evidence and reason to prove that I'm wrong, justify your position, and make me go, you know what? Actually, maybe he is a better singer. When I sing, people leave. When he sings, people come. So maybe that's, <laughs> the, way we, maybe that's the way we can look at it. 
So that's the way we did it in previous eras. But now I think we're starting to see something new. What matters now is not the truths and the facts and the evidence that I might marshal. What matters now is how I feel. I can see some of you shaking your heads. You already you, you recognize that. So in a disputation, I don't say I disagree with you, and this is why I say I disagree with you, and I will not tolerate your opinion. I'm not interested in why you hold your opinion or whether it's true. All that matters is your opinion is contrary to mine, and that makes me angry. Y'all have seen this a lot, I know, because you're the social media culture, and I don't mean that in any way in a, in a punitive way. I, I, I mean that because you grew up with social media, and you've seen it. Somebody ticks you off, blocked. <laughs> right? This is what happens all the time. They're canceled or blocked. You've heard people call this the cancel culture. I want you to understand that anything I say to you tonight is not in any way to me to be an attack on you. Everything that you guys are going through, I'm going through as well. I'm in a different position in a lot of this, um, but it's not because I'm more righteous than you. A, it's because I have all this gray hair. But in part, when we start talking about how we're going to live our life and, and how this should affect the way we live our life, it's not because I'm more pious, more religious, more righteous than you. It's just because I've failed so many times I got tired of failing again because I'm old and you fail the longer you live. Um, but I want you to see um, this progression. Um, we go from we can figure this all out to there's nothing to figure out to all that matters is my happiness to all that matters are my personal feelings to you make me angry so I'll no longer tolerate you. And now we have a, vulture, a virtual culture, and that's starting to supersede our real culture. I don't, I don't need to interact with you anymore. You know, if you tick me off, blocked, canceled, switch formats, platforms. I didn't like TikTok anyway. I'm going over here to Instagram, whatever it is, right? So before I actually get into all that, I want us to think about something about how social media and virtual culture works. Think about this. You create a social presence on these platforms by begging people to be your friend. All right? Um, you follow them. You entice them to follow you. Follow me. Does anybody really want to be a follower? I mean, generally speaking, I mean, you know, we say we want to be a follower of Christ, but I don't want to be a follower of Tom, right? Whoever Tom is. No offense to Tom, wherever he is. <laughs> So in real life, we're not, and our, our chief goal is to amass likes and follows for myself in a way that I would never attempt to do in real life. I would never go around begging people to be my friend. I would never go, would you please follow me? Can I follow you? Ever. I would never do anything like that. But we, that's all we do in a virtual reality, in social environment, which is social, in the social environment that's social media. The entirety of social media, in fact, this is an important, I think, uh, idea that God gave me. The entirety of social media is an appeal for the approval of others. And this is how people, and this is really scary, this is how people are defining themselves. It's no longer, who am I really? Who am I in Christ, really? What does God think of me? It's, how do I get all these other people to like me? And when they don't like me? Man, I'm crumbling. You know, it used to be in, well, I'm older, and we did stupid stuff when I was younger. So 
and, and when, when Steve and I were going to school, Steve was a much better human being than me, so he didn't do this. <laughs> but when Steve and I, back in our day, when we were going to school, you ticked me off, I hit you in the mouth. One of us won the fight, and then we laughed about it and went and ate lunch, assuming we didn't go to the principal's office where back then they would give you licks. You could either do that or you could take suspension, right? And you always took licks because you'd be a sissy if you didn't. And because licks only took about a, uh, about a minute or so to get over, and in suspension you had to go home and tell mom and dad all about it, and it ended up being a big mess. So. But nowadays it's not like that. You tick me off. I, I, have, I have an ability to, in some sense, ruin your life. I can ruin your virtual life. You, you've heard over and over again about bullying. In, in my day, you really bullied people. You know, but honestly, that was not near as painful, I don't think, as, as this. Plus, you could always get the big guy to go, hey, man, these guys are bullying me. And the big guy comes over and says, stop it or I'll hurt you. And they go, man, we're sorry. So you can't really do that now. You know, you can't go get the big guy on. I mean, the big guy right now is Donald Trump, and everybody's bullying him, and he's bullying everybody back. So how does that help anybody? <laughs> um, the social media platforms are designed for you to make your own cultural context. You get, in a way, you get to create your own world and redefine yourself. So think about what, what you do, or I don't know if you guys do this, but I've seen my younger daughter do this a lot. She won't take just any picture. She has to take the right picture, and she has to be at the right angle, and she has to be looking right, and the light has to be right. She has to be wearing the right clothes, and she has to post it at certain times, right? Now, when she was younger, we, 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 me and my wife would just kind of laugh about it, and then we'd go sit her down and talk to her about some of these things, now she's in fashion marketing and she's doing it and it makes a little more sense. It's for business and she's trying to show off different outfits and she's starting a company in there. So it makes a little more sense. It's a little different, but it's still the same kind of approach, right? I need to look my very best. And by the way, people don't care what you had for dinner. Don't post that nonsense. Nobody cares. <laughs> but everybody does because they want to show out. Look at this. My wife, she does this too on Facebook. It's mainly just for her sisters, but... We'll go out to uh, a nice restaurant, and she'll take a picture of it because it, th the meal looks pretty. I said, you're going to put that in your body. It doesn't really matter. She goes, oh, I want everybody to see it. Okay, fine. <laughs> anyway, I love my wife. Don't tell her I told you that. Um, so we are trying to now finally create our utopia, but it's not real. Get that? We haven't changed much, right? We keep doing the same things. And the people who disagree with you on these platforms, they get a utopia as well. It's just a different utopia. And there's an algorithm that returns people to you that agree with you, but not to those other people in that other utopia. They return to them those people who agree with them. And so you end up with factions. So remember, if I disagree with you, we're done. So I have to go get in my group, and you get your group, and you get with these people over here until there's a disagreement there. And then they split off into another group, and then another group, and then another group. Imagine a pie, and we're cutting it into slices. And those slices just keep getting more numerous and thinner until we end up with faction on top of faction on top of faction, and people can't talk to each other anymore. People aren't even hearing each other anymore. You see somebody who thinks differently from you, and you think, what an idiot. Y'all would never say that, but I would say that. What an idiot. How could this person think this way? How are they that stupid, right? Y'all would never say that, but I sometimes fail. And God loves me anyway, just so you know. 
I think that because they don't get the same interaction that I get, and they don't get the same interaction I get, and you end up with a whole country full of people that hate each other. Have you seen the news? Our cities are burning. We have presidents that can't, presidential candidates can't even talk to each other. We have two parties that absolutely hate each other. You have Fox News and MSNBC, and they don't agree on anything, and yet they're talking about all the same topics. Something's changed. I promise you, I've been around a long time, and I'm a student of history, and I've never seen anything like this before. We were talking about Ecclesiastes earlier, one of my favorite books. He says in there, time and again, there's nothing new under the sun. This is new. And that ought to tell you something. Not because necessarily Solomon was wrong or that the word of God is wrong, but something new is happening. It's what Steve was saying, something is happening in our country. Something is happening across the world. Something new is happening. Now, ecclesiology has always been the worst part of my theology. Ecclesiology just means end times understandings. It's always been the worst part of my theology. The more I read it, the more confused I get, to be honest with you. And I have two master's degrees in biblical studies. Um, but it's, it's very difficult to actually know what's going to happen. It's easy to read what did happen. It's hard to know what's going to happen because God doesn't go out of his way to make it completely clear. What I know is that this has never happened before, and it's starting to look an awful lot like the end times in Scripture. I'm not claiming that's what it is. I don't know. But I'm saying this. If we're living in a culture that is burning around us, and we're called to follow Christ in this culture, and we're starting to broach the end times, then we better darn well be living like Christ. We better darn well be doing what he called us to do. There's a lot of parables. He says, you don't want to show up, you know, not doing the right thing. When, you're ma when, you, when your master shows up, you don't want to be caught doing the wrong thing, right? There's several of them that are like that. So we're in trouble. Our culture's been pulled away. And, and one more thing I want to say on that the pulling away thing. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about this. It talks about the pattern of the world conforming you. You're passive in that, by the way. It's actively conforming you. And you have a responsibility to renew your mind so that God may, again, you're passive in this, transform your mind so that you will not be conformed by the pattern of the world. It's your only hope because we're in a river we're in, there was a, one of the songs we were singing earlier spoke to that in a way that God would guide us through the river because we're in a river right now and a river has a natural current and it pulls us. Anybody in here try to ever swim against the current, a hard current? It's exhausting, is it not? <laughs> right? Even just swimming, like if there's a strong current, you're just trying to swim across a little river, you don't go this way. You end up going this way, you know? You're way downstream by the time you get across current in this culture is extremely strong. In fact, let me give you just one example from politics. JFK, John Kennedy. Not necessarily a moral man, not my point. John Kennedy was adamantly against abortion. John Kennedy was for a strong military. He hated welfare, wanted to reduce welfare, and he wanted to lower taxes. John Kennedy was the symbol for the Democratic for the apex of the Democratic Party. They called his administration, still do, Camelot. John Kennedy could not possibly get elected as a Democrat. 
nowadays. There's just no possible way. Every one of his views are the views of a conservative Republican. That's how the culture has shifted. You used to have these people over here, they're now over here, right? And you and I are in that culture. Whether we want to be or not, the world is constantly trying to conform us. It isn't bad enough that we have our flesh that always wants to do what our spirit doesn't want to do. But we also have to be in a culture that's trying to pull us away from God. And then on top of that, we have an enemy that treads around like a roaring lion. So it's a difficult road we have to hold. So row, we have to hoe. So what are we going to do? In the book of Esther, uh, the Israelites were in danger of being slaughtered. Esther uh, had, a, I believe it was a cousin uh, named Mordecai. And Mordecai tells her that by, by God's providence, she is in the position of royalty. She has direct uh, access to the king. And she can maybe prevent the Jews from being slaughtered. And he tells her, y'all know what he tells her, right? What's he say? For such a time as this, right? You think it's possible that God has you here for such a time as this? In these difficult times where Rome is burning? In Acts 17, which I'm not going to get to because we don't have time. I understand I'm already probably over. I do this a lot. Go over, not actually do well. Um, Paul's speaking to <laughs> the men of Athens. And, and Paul says that... Um, God made, now understand, he's talking to the men of Athens. These are not Jews. These are not Christians. These people are completely unfamiliar. In fact, he said, they said to him that you're bringing strange things to our ears. And so they bring him before the court, which is the Areopagus, to be able to state his case. And he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So Paul says that God appointed the times and the places wherein everyone would live for such a time as this, so that we might act. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. He goes on to say that those who follow him are also the light of the world. Paul says that God has put his children in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as lights. So you look outside and you see the cities burning, factions everywhere, hate building. Remember, God has put you here right now to do something, to be salt and to be light to this crooked and depraved generation. What are you doing? What am I, what am I doing? Again, I'm not trying to be overtly righteous as if I've got this all figured out. Paul, Paul said in Philippians, he said, not that I've already become perfect, right? And that was Paul. You ever looked at the back of the Bible? You know those maps? You ever seen what all Paul did? I'm not even, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to have to say with John the Baptist, I'm not fit to tie his sandals. So I'm not perfect, and I don't want you to get the feeling that I'm suggesting that I'm way up here and you guys need to get busy. I'm saying we all need to get busy because the time is short. So Jesus said, if anyone, oh, hold on. So are you being time, you're being wise with your time and resources. Remember, the days are evil. Now maybe more than ever. James said this, what good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? He goes on to say that faith in God without deeds is dead. And we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing to change this crooked and depraved generation? Is our faith proving to be dead or alive? Now, you guys, 
again, I don't want you to misunderstand this. I'm not being pejorative at all, but I used to come in here and this room was packed. The, the, the hall was packed. That room back there was packed. There's people standing up, there's people standing up in there. And what do we have here? Probably, what, 35 people, something like that? So your friends are slipping. I'm sure COVID, there's a lot of things, that, that but, but they need you. Amen. They need you to act. All right? So Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Time and again, Paul tells his readers that they should follow his example. So we are to look at Jesus and the apostles as the examples we are to follow. And so then we need to ask, what did they do? Simply put, they engaged the culture where the culture was using an agreed-upon source of truth and then argued persuasively toward ultimate truth. If you think about this, if you go back to Paul and Acts, you know, you follow Paul all the way. It's, it's an amazing study just to follow Paul. Every time he goes to the, he does, he, first time, he, first thing he does, he goes straight to the synagogue. Next thing he does is go straight to jail. This is what he does over and over again. He goes to the synagogue, starts preaching to the Jews. He ends up getting thrown in jail. Well, when he's, when he's talking to the Jews, remember he said, I'll, I'll become all things to all people. I'll become to the Jew, I'll be a Jew, to the Gentile, I'll be the Gentile, the slave, to the free. Whatever, I'll do all things so that I might save some, he said. So he goes to the Jews, and he starts with their source of truth. He starts with the Jewish scriptures, and he argues from there to Jesus. And then they beat him up and throw him in jail. And then he goes in, in Acts 17, shows like three different places he goes. The last one is Athens, and he's talking to people who don't know anything about the Jewish scriptures. In fact, he was talking to them in the synagogue, and some people walk down the street, hear him talking, go, what is this babbler talking about? Let's grab him, take him to Areopagus. Takes him in there, and Paul knows their customs, knows their religion, knows their poetry, knows their philosophers. And he uses all that to approach them. He starts with their source of truth and brings them toward ultimate truth. And some were saved. And from one of them that was saved, we believe that he becomes the bishop and goes and evangelizes an entire country. What are we doing? Almost done. If Jesus were walking the earth today, I think he would be talking to people out there about physics, about cosmology, and about morality. I don't think he would approach them straight up with um, the Lord has said this and such. Because to most people out there, that's white noise. Some go to women, some go to whiskey, some go to Jesus. And all are perfectly okay with me. I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. The Bible is imperative. You can't grow without it. It's imperative. But those people, for the most part, don't know the Bible, don't care about the Bible. Imagine this. A Satanist walks up to you and says, let me just tell you about some of my scriptures and the way they've changed my life. I mean, how inclined are you? What's, what, are you going to be open-minded? Are you going to go, okay, you know, it was really nice talking to you, but i got to get moving. Because I'm probably going to be the latter. Satanist? Ooh. Frightens me just a little bit. Right? Maybe that's not the right approach, but again, I'm not Steve Hedlund. Steve Hedlund's a better human man. Steve Hedlund would immediately evangelize the person. Me, I'm just doing the best I can, you know, to run away from this person. <laughs> My point, though, is 
if you don't believe where they're starting from, why would you listen to them? I was in a conversation with, I'm in a, an apologetics, um, uh, DFW apologetics group, and we were sitting at a barbecue place and we we're having dinner, and the guy says, I don't understand why they don't want to talk to us. I'm talking about non believers. He goes, We have all the facts. They have no facts. We have all the reasons. We have all the evidence. They've got absolutely nothing, and they don't want to talk to us. Why is that? And I said, let me ask you something. You see that table over there? I says, yeah. You see the people sitting there? Yeah. What if one of them got up and walked over here and sat down and said, look, we're, we're with the Flat Earth Society, and we'd like to talk to you about our views. Would you, would you be open-minded, or would you just immediately go to, okay, let me show these idiots what's wrong with their view, right? And he says, yeah, I get that. And I go, well, that's the way they view us. Because the culture has moved on. We're in a post-truth culture. Christianity, in their view, has died. So I don't want to give you in any way the impression that Scripture is not important. It's important to you. And that you're not trying to lead them to Scripture. And you're not trying to lead them to the cross, because you are. And what I, a lot of what we do is we talk about the historical reliability of the Bible. Historical in the sense that archaeology proves it, that uh, ancient documents prove it. I mean, we have 13 non-biblical sources that talk about Jesus. And, and these people weren't friends with Jesus. They hated Jesus, and they still talked about him. And what they tell us about him is completely consistent with what the Bible tells us about him. Now, they call him, a, excuse me, a bastard rather than a a son of um, a virgin birth. And they say he was a sorcerer rather than a miracle worker, but they're telling us the same story, right? I'm not saying that, that all of that's not important. It's all really important. But you got to start where they are. You have to start with a source of truth that both of you agree on, or you're going to get nowhere. And so I think I'm, I went. Okay, so I look at it like this. This is like a bridge. And... Unbelievers are on one side and Christians are on the other. And the bridge is all of those views that the believer and that the unbeliever hold in common. And so you have to walk across that bridge and take them by the hand with all of the arguments, all of the reason, all of the truth that you both hold in common until you get them to the other side. So I want to let you guys go. I had some action points um, that we've now turned into questions. Actually, Luke has turned into questions most, much more masterfully than my action points. I would just like to encourage us all to do what we say we are doing, which is to follow Jesus, to do what he did. Okay? Right. Thank you. You guys are dismissed. Yep.